Joining us today on Shooting the Breeze, it's the man who mans the microphone and the music at Sydney Uni Flames, Angus Wildblood. Angus, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. It's an honour to be part of Shooting the Breeze. Great to have you here, Angus. You've been involved with the Flames for many, many years. How many years exactly have you been involved with the Flames? Since 2000, January 2001, so pretty close to 20-odd years. That must be make you one of the longest-serving people that do stuff on the sideline for the team. Yeah, I think so. I think, like, Dolts was obviously around before I was, but I don't know of any others that go back that far. Tell us, Angus, how did you get involved in basketball and, and all things basketball? Uh, well, it started in high school, I guess. As a kid in the late 70s, early 80s, I, as per normal kids, I played soccer and cricket for a club on the weekends. And when I got to school, I said, well, I don't particularly want to do that for school. I'll try something different. And basketball was, was an option and it, it wasn't a big sport back then. So I um, decided to play basketball, which in those days was a year-round sport at school. And as they say in the classics, the rest is history. I ended up giving up soccer and giving up cricket and devoting time to basketball. Uh, after school, went to play for Hills District in their almost their very first senior men's team and uh, played there for 10 years, then kept going from there, basically staying involved in the presentation side of the, the sport. The presentation side kept me involved when my body failed. <laughs> You've obviously had a lot of experience in the presentation side, but also something that a lot of people may not be aware of is that you've had other involvement in the sport. You had a fairly significant involvement in wheelchair basketball. So how did you get involved in that and what did you do with wheelchair basketball? Well, at the tail end of my career in playing basketball, I actually ruptured my ACL, as many basketballers do. And so subsequently, I was a, a year out of the sport. And at that time, there was a basketball league starting up in Sydney for wheelchair basketball. There is obviously a finite number of wheelchair athletes. So to make up teams, they asked what they called able-bodied players to play the game. And so we played in the wheelchairs. We learned how to play in a wheelchair and we were given the highest rating point value for a player so that the ability of the team was evened out. And after playing the game, I got involved with the New South Wales Wheelchair Sports. Uh, they asked me to be on the board of directors because I have a uh, accounting background and was a director for probably about eight years through that doing the presentation for the wheelchair game, stayed involved with that for a while as well, not only doing wheelchair basketball uh, presentation, but also did some athletics, did some of the announcing at the Ausday 10K event, which is a, a, a rather large Australia Day event for the wheelchair athletes. Kurt Fernley's won that multiple times. Louise Savage has won it multiple, multiple times. Yeah, just stayed involved with that and until the, the fateful day that I had children. And of course, time then disappears for everything in your extracurricular life. It does. That's when life really changes. Yes. But yeah, yeah, even today, the wheelchair basketball team from Sydney Uni often give me a shout. If I can do some announcing for the rounds that are held there, then I'll, then I'll go out and help them as well. But it is a fascinating sport. Yeah, as a bit of a, a segue to that, that's how I actually got involved in the Flames. During, I think it was 1998, the wheelchair basketball world championships, which is called the Gold Cup, 
was held in Sydney. And Bob Turner was brought in to coach the wheelchair basketball team. Yeah, at that point in time, Bob Turner was a, you know, a major player in basketball in Sydney and Australia. So it was a very high profile appointment and gave some kudos to the event and not just to the athletes, but, you know, generated some publicity. He was actually very good at coaching the wheelchair team because basketball is basketball, but you do have to learn what happens on a wheelchair basketball court is very different to what happens on an able-bodied basketball court. I want to talk a bit to you about that for a second because you're coming at it from a very different perspective. You've played both forms of the game. Just for people who really aren't aware, what are the major differences that you find in the tactics of the sport for the two different games? The only major difference in the two games is the travel rule. Able-bodied basketball, you can dribble the ball. Once you stop dribbling the ball, that's it. You can't. You you have to pass it or shoot it. That's all you've got the option. In wheelchair basketball, you can dribble the ball, catch it again, and then dribble it again. But what you can't do is push on the wheels more than twice without bouncing the ball. So it's a little bit technical, but once you get there, it, it's quite an easy kind of concept. But that is, as far as playing the game, that is the only two differences. You know, the court's the same size, the ring's the same height, the keyway is the same, everything is the same, apart from, obviously, you play in a wheelchair. Therefore, tactics go a little bit different because... If you put 10 wheelchairs in a keyway, you obviously lose a lot of space because they take up a, a fair bit of real estate. The tactics of the game are very much centered around screening and getting people open much, much more than in the able-bodied game. So if you can get someone open and going rolling to the basket, that's what you're going to do. Essentially, you know, in a two-minute explanation, that's the difference in the game. What are the rules around contact on that one? Because I've got to be honest, that was one of the things that I was a little bit confused about when I saw those games. Okay, so if you're confused watching able-bodied basketball and the block and charge rule, then you'll be just as confused in wheelchair basketball. <laughs> because, But take into account that you know, if you're rolling in a straight line, then you're deemed to have position. You know, and, and I've been out of it for a fair few years, so technically some of these little nuances may have changed. But essentially, exactly the same as in able-bodied basketball, if you disadvantage a player, you're going to get called. Well, if you run into someone, well, they may not call it. They may call it. If the player's disadvantaged, you're going to get called. Okay, fair enough. Essentially, it is the identical game. Now, I want to kind of move on a little bit to the Australian Youth Olympic. You were the announcer for that. How did you find that experience? I wasn't the only announcer. There was a number of us, and it was a pretty great event. The round-robin games were played out at Penrith. There were a couple of courts out there. I think there was three different courts going all day long. But we got to see some pretty good Australian talent, you know, the upper echelon of all of those organisations. And I the one thing that I do remember is watching a fairly young Aaron Phillips play. You know, I said to people almost every single game that I did, I said, watch that one. She's going to be something. The talent on show was just amazing. And being straight after the Olympics, it was kind of a catapult into getting these athletes used to being in 
big major events. Now we've got Youth Olympics going on all over the world. And the, the last one that I was involved in was actually the three-on-three. Three. They did switch the basketball competition up to three-on-three. Three. That had, you know, athletes from other countries as well as obviously Australia this time. The first one was more an Australian Youth Olympics. The subsequent ones have been more a Youth Olympics for other countries and, you know, Pacific countries and Asian countries that have, that have been involved. You mentioned, obviously, you've been involved with the Flames going back to 2001. Over that period of time, how do you think women's basketball and the NBL itself has progressed and evolved? Wow. The one thing that that comes to mind is the players and the style of the game. I mean, I go back to when I was watching the Flames play back in the 90s to watching them, them play now. The level of ability and talent hasn't changed that much in that these athletes are incredible. Yeah. You know, go back years and we had Trish Fallon and Michelle Timms and Sandy Brondello and Shelley Gorman. Gorman. And right the way through to the guys that we've had in the team in, in the last few years, you know, Leilani Mitchell and Katie Ray and all those guys. The talent is amazing. But I think the level and technical grasp of the game has increased and ability to invent stuff has increased. You know, 25 years ago, the women's game, and this is one of the reasons why I absolutely love the women's game, is it's very technical and they run their offense. They don't rely on razzle-dazzle and stuff that's in the men's game because the men's game is probably more athletic and, and they rely more on individual talent than team talent. It's interesting uh, you mention that, Angus, because I, I quote this often. There was a, an interview with the ex-Minnesota governor, Jesse Ventura, a few years back where he said he prefers watching women's basketball to men's basketball in the States because it's closer to the original game and it's played predominantly below the rim. What do you think about yep. that? The fact that it's that it's more traditional form of the game, the women's game is much more team-orientated than the men's game. And that's not to say the men's game is not a team sport and it's not team-orientated, but... They do, you know, run isolation plays and one-on-one plays a lot more in the men's game than in the women's game. The women's game, you'll see they'll come up the court, they'll have their general and they'll run their play. And if something happens out of that, of an individual nature, awesome. But they're trying to include the team and run the team and then create stuff out of that. Whereas in the men's game, you'll often see one of the guys take the ball out to the 45 or the top of the key and everybody else is clear away. Yeah, that's true. You will see that in the women's game. Maybe if the game's on the line and, you know, there's five seconds left and they're trying to, you know, get that winning basket or whatever. But generally speaking, the women are very much run the offense. Let's create stuff off the offense. And it's from a purist basketball spectator, it's much more satisfying to watch. I get your point. What you were saying leads me into my next question, which is about over the years, what are your most memorable Sydney Flames moments? Being involved since 2001, they actually won the championship as the Panthers in 2001. They did that away. I do remember that because we actually had it on the screen during (laughs) the Kings game at Kudos Bank (laughs) Arena because we wanted to keep track of the scores. We were in the grand final, you know, 
I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like eight out of nine years in a row. That was a quite long pa- run. Yeah, not getting past post. Sitting at home a couple of years back, watching them play Dandenong and just absolutely killing the game is obviously a, a really, really great memory. I do have a funny memory of one of our losses, and that was when we played at Penrith. We played Canberra. The Penrith sound system was set up that it had a cutoff if the volume went over a certain decibel reading. And unfortunately, we had the most humongous and awesome crowd at Penrith. A lot of them were obviously Sydney fans. Yeah. But they generated so much noise, and I mean so much noise, that almost whenever I went to say something on the microphone, boom. The PA system would cut out. <laughs> and it was so it was the most frustrating day. Not only did we lose the game, but even the great guys at the ABC who were televising that day, they tried to give me, you know, commentator microphones and all that kind of stuff, but we just couldn't beat the sound system. So that's probably one of my memories that sticks in my head, not for the right reasons, obviously, but you know, just being there every single game is probably the the best memory watching the team watching the crowd involved in the team because you know it is quite a small venue at sydney uni seeing the crowd and the crowd's involvement with the players is just awesome yeah there's a lot to be said for that i think a lot of the players uh, i know that we've spoken to over the over the years like the fact that the crowd is so close to the court and they can see the crowd during the game and they keep saying that it really helps rev them up for a game. Yeah, and in saying that, the Sydney crowd is also, and this is a good and a bad thing, they are real basketball purists. They're there to watch the game. My job is to provide entertainment and atmosphere, but these guys just want to watch the game. But also we've got to generate the entertainment, so it's a really fine mix with our Sydney crowd. The point you're making is right. They are, they're a really knowledgeable crowd, which is really interesting. And I think they're very different to crowds that you get at, certainly at, at some of the NBL games. The knowledge level of the game, the relationship with the players, it's a completely different position to the NBL and even to some of the other WNBL teams as well. I think with, you know, the experience with when you go to an NBL game, you know, particularly the Kings, you are going for an all-immersive experience. You know, there are people in the stands, you know, there's fireworks going off, there's flames shooting out, there's music the whole time. And the fact that they've got 12,000 people, that generates atmosphere, generates entertainment. Whereas, and a lot of people are going because they like the game of basketball, but also they like the fact that it's an event. Whereas Sydney Uni fans, they're going because they either know a player, they play the game, they love the game. They're not going to be entertained, they're going to watch the game. I think at an NBL level, the game is part of the entertainment and a lot of people, and the the game is a fantastic product, don't get me wrong. The game at, at Sydney Uni is all about the game and the players. It reminds me a bit of the NFL as well. Like, you go to an NFL game, an NFL game is an event, 
there's a lot going on on the field, off the field. It's typically the sort of sort of game that you go to with a group of friends and you make it a social event as well as watching the game. Yeah, absolutely. And that's bringing me on to the next thing which you've touched on, the entertainment and the music and the reactions you get from the crowds to what you're doing. How do you find balancing all of that? The one thing that I have learned over my years of doing this is that you will never please everybody in the stadium with what music you play because so, so many people like so many different things. The trick is to try and play as much of a variation of as many different music genres as you can and in keeping you know, everything upbeat because basketball is an upbeat sport. You know, most of the crowd will want something if you're going to play something and they're going to get involved. They either want something to sing along to or they want something to clap to because that's how they get involved. Being a close game, especially at Sydney Uni, you, you might can the music and just try to convince the crowd to participate in defence chants and you've got to judge the crowd. Sometimes we've got a crowd at Sydney Uni where you'll start a defence chant and you get one or two people adding in. Okay, okay. so tonight's not the night we've got a boisterous crowd, so we'll go with music for majority of, of that night. Yeah. We'll have other nights where we'll have a boisterous crowd and I don't even have to start the chant. They'll just start going and the crowd will take over. And I think that's the important thing as well. You've got to take your cues from the crowd. Yeah. So you can have smaller crowds and they have been so vocal, it's really surprising how vocal they get given the size of the number of people in the room. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's often when you get like a, a club group. One of the, the uni guys had his daughter's basketball club in there, and there was probably about 20 or 30 girls, and they were just there to have fun. They led the defense chants and, and the crowd. But because they had that leadership in within the crowd, then it's infectious. Yeah, I think I remember the game you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. that's when I go, right, I don't need to do anything. Take it away. Crowd, you're on. And I think that's one of the art of doing what we do as, as game time entertainment. People don't come to a basketball game to listen to me talk or play music. They come to watch the game. They come to be involved. If I can help them be involved by playing certain songs at certain times or you know, starting out defense chants or Sydney chants or whatever, then I will. Yeah, it's a balancing act You know, from listening to what you're saying. When you've got the right crowd, it's so easy for them to get involved in the music that you're playing. You know, there have been instances where they'll get up and dance or sing along. When that does happen, how do you try to, you know, encourage them to keep it up? If you've got the right crowd, and you know almost instantly as soon as you put a track on that, yeah, okay, that one didn't work. Let's go back to a little bit more old school. There's things that that you can play at any arena, and it doesn't have to be basketball, but any arena, the crowd will react to. You know, even 10 years ago, I think it was the Orlando Magic, and I used to look at their website a lot, because they used to list out the tracks that they played during a game. And, you know, they had the warm-up music and they had the tracks they played at timeouts and walking on tracks and walking off tracks and this timeout. And the one thing that was really common was in the fourth quarter, the tracks that they played were the same tracks that every sporting event anywhere around the world 
is playing every single week. And, you know, they're the we will rock yous. They're the hey babies. They're the moany moanies. They're the ones that all the, the things that people know. There's a few new ones coming in, like Cha Cha Slide is is something that's that started up in the last couple of years that are getting people involved in and clapping along to. But going back to those tracks, I'm a believer is one of my favourites that gets the crowd going because it it also means something to your team. You're saying you believe in your team, even though it's a great track to clap along and sing to. But yeah, all those, you know, I hate to use this word because I feel like I'm being a grandpa, but the classics will always get the crowd involved. I can say, honestly, from watching the games over the last few years, that does happen a lot, particularly in the fourth quarter. You know, the team has a number of absolute diehard fans, and typically it doesn't matter what you play, all they do is just focus on the game. So my question to you on this one is, have you ever tried to see if you could find something just to get them to join in? Look, in all honesty, there's so much going on on my desk. I'm not paying attention to which ones are going up and down. And if I've got a bunch of audience members joining in, I'm going to keep going. If I've got a quiet crowd for that night, then I'm going to back it out. But there's so much going on with announcing, with running the music, with trying to plug sponsors, as we have to do. And there's only one of me. When we do the double headers at the Kudos Bank Arena now, all I'm doing is the announcing. And there's people all around. And, you know, say we might spot someone in the crowd, but there's other people that are concentrating on that and they'll get the camera on them and, and do stuff. But that's their job. Yeah. You know, whereas, you know, at a Flames game, there's just way too much going on. Sure. I'll tell you one thing that I have noticed is, Quite often, one of the best indicators of how the game and the crowd is going is quite often the kids that they've got on the sidelines ready to wipe the floor. Usually when you see that they're getting into the game and they're getting into the music, quite often it's also the crowd's getting right into the music as well. Yeah, the kids are a good indicator, and which is sometimes a, a good thing and sometimes a bad thing. You want the kids concentrating on running onto the court and wiping the floor. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the kids that come along each and every week are obviously great for the club and, and they do a fantastic job and, and they are a good indicator of whether you're playing some good tracks because they obviously want to hear the, the newer stuff, which I've got to continually force myself to, to find and play because obviously, you know, you're not getting any younger and finding the, the stuff that the young people like is getting harder and harder. You're starting to sound like a dad there, Angus. <laughs> well, that's because I am. From time to time, we sort of ask a totally unscripted left of field question. Yeah. Which band... Do you most associate or relate to? Oh, that is a super hard question to answer. But the first thing, and I'll go with this one because the first thing that popped into my head was Midnight Oil. And I say that because it brings memories of, you know, going to see concerts back at the entertainment center and just the style of music was always awesome and even though there's messages in almost everything they produced you know 98% of what they did was still very good 
music-wise, whereas I think a lot of other bands, when they tried to say something, the quality of the music dropped off, whereas Midnight Oil, they bring me you know, those warm, fuzzy memories of, of youth, but also the quality of the music never dropped off. Yeah, that's true. Very much part of their DNA. Even the stuff that they've just brought out now, it's, you know, the probably the messages are getting, you know, more and more poignant, but the music is still top quality. Absolutely. Angus, really appreciate your time today and look forward to seeing you at a Flames event at some point in time in the future. Absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honour being asked to do Shooting the Breeze in amongst all these fantastic players that we have in our Flames family. Thanks, Angus. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Paul.